Welcome to Insights, an Amplify original series giving you insights on cultural myths, employee engagement, and why it all matters. I'm Nicole, and today I thought it'd be good to start from the beginning. The beginning of Amplify, sure, but more importantly, the obstacle, the biggest issue we are facing in the workforce, which is how do we understand what our people need and why should a CEO care? I remember this one time when our strategic thinking team that plans our strategy for the next year sat down in a conference room and we were coming up with this objective, one of the three company objectives for the year, those strategic imperatives. We had three of them and one of them was to be a workplace of choice. That's how we talked about it. We wanted to be this place where people wanted to work and loved working once they were here. And I facilitated a discussion about 90 minutes. I asked everyone to come with their best ideas for what would be some initiatives or or tactics that we could do to create this workplace of choice at at Bluebridge. And and I kid you not, after 60 minutes of heated discussion, we landed on the best thing that we could do for our culture was buy our team more snacks. And I walked out of that meeting and I said, surely – that's not what we just decided on. That's that's really what we just decided on, that that was going to be the most important thing. What, what it made me realize is that for three years in Bluebridge, I had been trying to reduce the complexity uh, of, of growing and expanding our team and serving more markets by distilling down the most important key metrics of every function and every part of the business. And this these metrics gave me a heat map of what was going well in the organization, what was concerning and what was not going well, kind of every metric around each function, I knew whether it was green, yellow, or red. And these colors for me with metrics helped me understand how I should prioritize my time and how could we invest more into the green, how could we fix uh, the the yellow and, and the red. And what I realized was that strategic decisions The best strategic decisions that we took came from looking at the data, whether it was customer data or market data, synthesizing metrics and insights, and then using those to prioritize the activities, initiatives, and strategies that we thought would be the the highest leverage activities, the highest value, the low-hanging fruit, if you will. And I realized that I had a complete dearth and absence of metrics and KPIs, especially leading indicators, when it came to looking at people and culture. And so this flagged to me that we were basically just guessing. We were using complete gut instinct to prioritize how we were evolving and improving our culture. And I realized that that wasn't the case for any other function. When I looked at my profit and loss statement, I realized that most of our expense base and structure by far was payroll. And so we were spending the most amount on people and we had the least amount of feedback loops and metrics and KPIs on people. The best metric that we had was employee turnover, an incredibly lagging indicator. I mean, we were finding out at exit interviews which managers were doing well and providing amazing employee experiences where people did great work and which managers were driving out really great high performers. And what, what was I doing as a leader that was working for the team and not the feedback loop was when we lost good people. And so I realized there must be a better way. How do we find a leading indicator metric for people and culture? And how do we distill down 
data that helps predict how people perform at work so that we can focus on the right things at our culture. I mean, you know, when we were five people in a coffee shop, in a co-working space, gut-based decisions about how to improve our culture, it, they just happen naturally. And, and those conversations flowed up and down the layers of command because there, there wasn't even any layers. But once we got to 20, 30, 40, 50 people, that, that gut-based, intuition-based prioritizing of people and culture initiatives failed. And so Amplify came out of this need for how do we have a metric that predicts performance and employee engagement at work, and how do we create a system that looks at that data, prioritizes the most important actions, and executes on those, communicates those actions well down to our teams, and how do we continually measure, iterate, experiment, act, and remeasure, not just at an annual cycle, which is right, when you think about how few things we ever measure annually, right? I don't ever measure cash just once a year. <laughs> Even if we're doing well on cash flow, right, we measure it continually so that we can reprioritize our activities based on the data. And so from a strategic perspective and kind of a, a mind intellectual perspective, that's how Amplify came about. Okay. So now you know how Amplify came about. We get it, right? Employee engagement has to be more than snacks. People leaving hurts the bottom line. Got it. But there's more to the story than that. That's just one person's, Santiago's, perspective. But where do insights come from? They come from a story. They come from experience, a defining moment. And this insight didn't just come out of a strategic initiative. It came from a big failure. But I'll let you hear how Santiago tells it. So at the end of Bluebridge... We, we sold two of the business units and we had to transition some team members out. We had to, we kept most of our team members to, to pursue the Amplify mission. It was just a tremendous time of change. I overloaded myself with too many responsibilities, basically playing M&A banker and CEO to two different deals at the same time and basically almost burned myself out. And, and as I was working three to four jobs all at the same time because the company needed it, uh, needed me to succeed with this, I felt an incredible weight uh, on my shoulders. And so as I overloaded myself with entirely too much responsibilities and too much pressure, I began to lose sight of what really mattered. And so when somebody would come to me and ask for advice around something, I would say, listen, I have, I'm doing three to four jobs right now. Why don't you have one job? Figure it out. <laughs> and it turns out that you have interactions like that with people for a couple months. And it turns out that if you fail to communicate all of the change that's going in the organization and take the team with you through the change and communicate open and fail to communicate openly and vulnerably, authentically and transparently, that that really affects team member engagement. And a few brave and courageous team members come up to me during this season, this, this kind of dark season for my leadership and would say, hey, I think there's something off. I think there's maybe a morale issue or, hey, people are kind of worried about the changes. And I brushed it off as just, you know, sort of cute anecdotes that, that were just people's feelings struggling with change, right? People never like change. And I thought that people were just struggling with change. But what happened was that we measured our own engagement. And we had measured it back in the Bluebridge days. And we had scored the second highest engagement score that that measurement had ever recorded. And we, were, we had built something truly special in, in the Bluebridge days in, in terms of our culture. And through those six months of high change and high transition, where I forgot what truly mattered, I just went task-oriented to get things done rather than being there for my team throughout this change. What happened from that 
our team took another engagement assessment and we saw a 50th percentile dip in a six month period of our own engagement. We went from one of the most highly engaged companies this measurement assessment had ever recorded to one in the bottom quartile of engagement compared to our peers. And here is as we're about to start our journey as an employee engagement company. And so what I felt when I saw the heat map of red boxes in our engagement scores across departments, I felt embarrassed. This was my job and I had failed at my job. I felt shame that I didn't see it coming. I, I felt a tremendous amount of clarity around how critically important this became overnight the number one priority. And I actually felt confidence because a blind spot that I had had been removed and I confidently knew the three things that were keeping our team from doing their best work and being able to show up with their best self with their full heart and mind every day. It turns out that it wasn't just change that was the issue. I had failed to articulate the new purpose and the new direction for where we were going. And so we brought on people that were passionate about Bluebridge's purpose. And the reality was that we hadn't chosen a new flag on a new mountaintop to sprint after. And so the team was lost. We were transitioning from Bluebridge to Amplify and role clarity, right? People's jobs were changing significantly and people didn't have role clarity. What's my job? Where does it end? How do I get measured on it? Where does my job end and others begin? And so balls were dropped and toes were stepped on. And what's what happens when you don't have good role clarity? And so here we were literally prioritizing snacks and Cheetos for our team. And they're saying, we don't need snacks. Just give us a job description and a clear purpose of where to head with the company. And so what, what I, how I describe that day for me or that week is of difficulty for me as a leader is a cold splash of water. I was awakened to the reality, not my perception of the reality about how engaged everyone was, but the reality. And I, th I think many times I speak around the country to, to groups of, of CEOs and I, I, sometimes I poll them and, and say, how many of you think you have a, above a 90th percentile culture? You, you're great. And it turns out that most of the group raises their hands and says, I have a 90th percentile culture. And obviously you, you get the math there, right? That's, abs that's totally impossible. And the reality is our data shows that the most engaged people in an organization are those at the top of the hierarchy. And so CEOs get a false sense, business leaders have a false sense, a false perception of how engaged people are and how much they're enjoying their roles and investing their full self into it because they talk with the most engaged people all the time. And they don't realize that the further that folks get away from where decisions get made and where context for decisions is shared and involvement and participation for decisions is, the harder it is for people to be engaged and the less engagement we see, which means that the people that interact with the customer in customer service or the people, sales reps that interact with prospects, those folks that touch the market and the customer, right? You can argue the most important people in the company, those are the ones that have the most challenges in front of them to give their best self at work, which is concerning. While that's Santiago's story, his aha moment, the reality is many CEOs haven't gone through this transformation. You often hear when it comes to change, regardless of what it is, that in order for it, a transformation to take place, you have to look in the mirror. And often you can predict the outcome based on your reflection. Change is hard. Transformation is hard. 
And only real change can start with one's own self-awareness. So I asked Santiago, what advice does he have for CEOs? And his answer, well, it confirmed my suspicions. And many times it's not until we feel the cost and the impact on others of our own leadership gaps and, and failures that we find enough impetus and enough motivation to take a hard look in the mirror and truly contemplate real change in ourselves. And so for some, I've heard that it's having a really important key leader or just an incredible team member walk out unexpectedly and losing good people. And then that's what begins to turn a leader's heart around to realize that it's not about necessarily, it is about the quality of the decisions that they make and how personally productive they are. But a CEO's and a leader's first and foremost responsibility is taking care of people and helping them understand how they can make an impact in the most valuable ways to the organization. And so whether it's losing a few key people or taking an engagement measurement to uncover what blind spots we might have about our own leadership and about our own organizational culture, many times it's getting objective data, objective feedback from others, either via conversation or via formal engagement assessment, that that's what, we've, that's what I've found is enough uh, to really help a leader, encourage a leader to consider uh, real change uh, in their leadership. And if that isn't there, it's hard. On this show, I promised insights. I promised that we would provide you with a holistic viewpoint. And so after reflecting on that conversation with Santiago, I sought to get more insights on how CEOs should start to think about employee engagement and their people. Now, this series will pull from other CEOs, like Santiago, but it will also give voice to HR professionals. So with me is Roberta Matchison. She spent a decade acting as an HR director and now has her own HR consulting firm. The reality is many executives and HR leaders are in the trenches every day. And while the CEO may be wanting more strategic insights, there is rarely a chance to take a step back and think critically about the HR function. And to that end, to even think about what people within the organization want and need in order to thrive in their roles and environments. So how can a CEO empower his or her team to be more strategic when thinking about the HR role? Well, the times that I've seen it really work well and where they get it right is when the leader has, the CEO, has a lot of respect for the function and that the leader doesn't simply see it as a means to an end. And it's not just about hiring and you know, throwing payroll in and office administration. It's about really getting to the heart and soul of the organization and making sure that people love to come to work in their companies and that customers love to do business. And so when I think about my most successful clients who have what I would consider top-notch HR people, um, to be honest with you, most of them are either in Fortune 500 companies uh, because they're able to afford to hire people who are uh, seasoned and who have learned that you have to think strategically if you're going to be an effective HR leader. An example of this is a company called Kronos in um, Lowell, Massachusetts, and their VP of HR is the right-hand person to the CEO. I mean, he's not just somebody who gets tossed a bone every now and again. He is involved on many, many strategical issues 
and, and has the respect of the CEO. And so if he makes a recommendation and he's able to support that recommendation, because again, he is seasoned, um, then the CEO will, you know, take those recommendations under advisement and in most cases move forward. And so he's very effective, you know, as opposed to a lot of companies that I see where, you know, they'll put HR under the CFO and uh, maybe they'll hire a junior person with, you know, two or three years of management experience who quite honestly doesn't have the depth. They don't have the critical thinking skills. They're not thinking outside the box. They're following everyone else. And so then they're disappointed because they're like, well, um, this isn't really effective, is it? And of course, the CFO is really concerned with one thing and one thing only, and that's the numbers, right? So that person isn't going to be all that effective in helping to shape that leader. What I've gleaned in these first couple interviews is that if a CEO wants to create a people-first organization, then he or she has to invite HR to the table. It can't be an afterthought of, oh, we need more people. No, it should be more aligned with the company values, its cultures, its beliefs. And then how does the HR team support the company goals? But from what Roberta shared, that ownership to be at the table has to come from the individual as well. It can't just be CEO mandated. It has to be supported. When a CEO says he or she is looking for an HR partner, that they're really clear on what that means. And what are the, what are the skills that that person absolutely has to have? And forget about these certifications. You don't need somebody with a CCP or an or Shurum, you know, designation. I mean, it means nothing. I mean, we look at it and I'm like, who certifies the certifiers, right? You really want somebody who has done what you want to get done already. And you'll save a lot more money than hiring somebody who you think could maybe do it, but you're not sure but they're, you know, 10 or $15,000 less than the person who's already demonstrated their expertise. I was really fortunate when I mentioned to you that I was suddenly in charge and I was tossed into this new job, I was given a choice. And my boss said to me, here's how much money we have. And you can either go hire outside consultants or you can hire a team. And I thought it took me about five seconds. And I thought to myself, if I hire a team, I don't even know what I'm doing. So what is the point of doing that? But if I hired consultants, people that I could learn from, that would not only help the company, but it would help me as well. And so that's what I did. I wound up hiring, you know, consultant for compensation. I had a coach. I had a consultant for benefits. I mean, you name it, I had it. And so as you're looking, if you decide to go the route where you're going to hire somebody who is not as seasoned, maybe you feel like you can't because of your budget, then definitely make sure that you have um, money set aside to give that person a coach who can help bring them along so that they can get better results for you more rapidly. So taking a step back, when I think about what Santiago shared and then apply it to the challenges Roberta shared in her career, the HR team and CEO have to be aligned. They have to sit at the same table and think about the most important asset to both of their roles, their people. And if they can't agree on that, then it's going to be a battle the entire relationship. Now, we're just scratching the surface here. We haven't even dug into how employee engagement is defined because the reality is it's all in who you ask. 
But I did ask Santiago, and I'd like to leave us with his definition before we go any deeper into the series. So employee engagement uh, is defined as an employee's intellectual and emotional connection with an employer that's really demonstrated by the motivation and commitment to positively impact the company vision and goals. Employee engagement happens when there's a fit between what a person needs, how they're motivated, how they find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in their work, and the fit of that, what the person needs and wants and desires from their work and the work environment instead of an organization. So I think that's, that's one common misconception around employee engagement is that either A, you can create an environment uh, that basically forces people to be more engaged and that's false. Employee engagement is inside of a person. At the same time, a person in and of themselves without a great fit on their work environment, try all they might, they're not going to be fully engaged if they, they haven't found. So it's really employee engagement is the magic that happens when the work environment and what the person needs and wants truly to do amazing work fit. And, and when that happens, you have a psychological state and an emotional state inside of a person that, that says, put me in coach, what, where are we going as a business? What are our goals? What's our mission as an organization? And how can I wake up every day seeking to make an impact, make a difference and help us make progress toward that outcome? And when that happens, it's, it's an amazing thing. To summarize, employee engagement is all about the fit between what an employee, a person, wants and desires out of the work they do and what they truly need. And this isn't about snacks or a pretty office. Rather, in this series, we're talking about psychological safety. We're talking about a path for growth, about meaning and fulfillment in their work. We're talking about mastery, autonomy, those deeper things that people need to give their best. These are the things that this series is exploring under the lens of an HR and CEO's perspective. And it all begins with the employee experience and understanding where that story starts. So join us next week, where we'll take a step back to get insights on how the workforce has evolved and go further into why CEOs and HR leaders have to be aligned.